I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. This is the last uh, sermon in this series that I will offer. Pastor Audrey will finish us up next week um, on the healing of Naaman in 2 Kings 5. This is also my third anniversary of being pastor here. And so, as is my custom, I have written a letter, to the best of my abilities, um, to you, the congregation of North Holland. And so, for that reason, I will, in a minute, uh, grab a stool and take a seat. I know that's usually what pastors do when they say they're leaving. That's not the case. The only uh, serious job offer I've gotten was from a funeral home director, and I wasn't particularly interested But as we gather um, and think about the last 12 months, and as we think about the year ahead, as we come together for God's word and the reading thereof, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer, a prayer taken from Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my lips and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, are eager to hear your spirit. Amen. My dear North Holland, some of you have known me for six years, and you all know that I can't resist the weird stories, like when Elisha calls down a curse and 42 youths get mauled by bears. As Christians, we have to know that these kind of stories are in Scripture, and we have to at least have a starting point of knowing what to do with them. But today's passage is almost the opposite, but equally as important for what it represents. There is a common critique of the Old Testament, and you might hear this from time to time from skeptics or opponents of your faith, that the Old Testament is full of genocide, rape, murder, and general barbarianism. And that God even seems to condone some of these things. And undoubtedly, the Old Testament does have several grisly moments, pun partially intended, and God doesn't always punish people or react to the situations the way that we want God to or the way we expect that God should. But the Old Testament is also chuck full of mercy, grace, abundance, hope, and the steadfast love of God. Widows' sons are raised from the dead. People are fed. The vulnerable are taken care of. The word of the Lord goes out in the form of the law to call people all to the Lord, and so on. Today's passage, equally as important as the weird stories, which I can't resist as I've been described by elders here as quirky and eccentric. I take those as compliments. Today's passage is a contrast and a foil to all of that other nasty stuff that undeniably does happen in the Old Testament. It is a contrast to the harsh and bitter world that people lived in in that day. And today's passage will foreshadow how Christ told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Today's passage is one of mercy in a time of war. I invite you, before the reading of the word, to pay attention to two things. The first is this, who outnumbers who? 
Does this passage of Scripture lead us to believe that we are in over our heads and out of our depth, or do we need to look beyond popularity and polls, numbers, and statistics to embrace a more holy version of confidence? Confidence that does not lead to arrogance, but confidence that rests on Christ and Christ alone. Who outnumbers who? And secondly, how do you treat your enemies? How do you deal with people that you despise or think less of? And if you don't think you have any enemies or that you don't despise anyone, I bet 10 minutes on your social media or a half-hour conversation about politics and protests will reveal that you do have people that you think less of, that you're on one side and they're on the other. Make no mistake, my friends, we do have people that we think less of, that Scripture would call them our enemies. But we're going to come back to that later and more pointedly in the Ten Commandments when we talk about thou shalt not kill later this fall. But how do you treat such people that you think less of? What's your instinct and reaction? I invite you simply to hear the word of the Lord from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8-23. through 23. And find yourself in the story, for it is our story as Christians. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. I'm going to transition back to the pulpit, for the pulpit is for the reading and the reverence of God's holy word. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place, indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. This, of course, enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which one of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the, king of, tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Do not be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are far more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened the eyes, their eyes, and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. 
When the king of Israel saw them, he asked, Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those whom you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Challenge accepted. When I read this particular passage of Scripture, those words come to mind. The prophet Elisha, who received his mantle from the, from the Lord as Elijah's successor, must occasionally hear that still small voice of God whispering in his ear. And as I read all of the tales of Elisha, I just see him mouthing back those sanctified words of response. Challenge accepted. Hey, Elisha, do you want to frustrate the king of Aram by giving secret information to the king of Israel? Challenge accepted. Hey, Elisha, your servant is terrified of the Aramean army. Do you want to blow his mind by showing him what's really going on beyond that which is normally seen? Challenge accepted. Hey, Elisha, do you want to annoy the king of Israel by making him do something holy and righteous, even if it's the opposite of what he wants to do right now? Challenge accepted. That's my favorite part of this chapter. When Elisha blinds the entire army, he walks them into a fortified city and then opens their eyes. And the king of Israel sees his enemies before him, now vulnerable, and he's like, Elisha, shall we kill them? And Elisha says, no, give them food and water. I just see the king of Israel squirming and hesitating a little bit and going, Elisha, are you sure we shouldn't kill them? These are our enemies, and they are now vulnerable before us. And Elisha is sure. He says, let them eat and drink and be on their way. It's not just sending the Aramean army on their way, but it's demonstrating to the world that there is a better way. Elisha points towards a better way along with all the other prophets, Jesus perfected that better way by showing us that he was the way and the truth and the life. And we, as Christians, are called to show the world a better way. You see, the real challenge in all of this, in living your life as a committed disciple of Christ, is to show the world a better way. A better way to live, a better way to love, a better way to persevere, a better way to help, a better way to hope. That's the remarkable thing about stories like this in the Old Testament. They're set against the backdrop of a barbaric, territorial, tribally violent, and nationally virulent world as it was. But every now and then, the Lord's servants challenge the world to live a better way. And every now and then, the people respond by saying, challenge accepted. Instead of killing your enemies, you feed them. Instead of falling into despair, when you see your enemy approaching, you see the power of God backing you up. 
Instead of fighting your enemies on their terms, you learn to see your enemies through God's eyes. If the Lord whispered to you, show the world a better way, would you whisper back, challenge accepted? We'd like to think that we would, but might honestly wonder if we would act on such a challenge. Sometimes it's because we're not following Christ closely enough to really have a clear picture of what that better way is. And then we just default to following our own way, even when it's anger and hatred and malice. Sometimes it's because we're like Elisha's servant and we just don't see a way out. And sometimes we're just tired. (laughs) We're just tired. And we feel like we need a break or a shortcut would be nice. And sometimes we either don't feel up to the task or we are completely oblivious to what's in front of us. I specialize in that last one. I'm really good at not knowing fully what I'm getting myself into. I think that's how I ended up here. In 2011, the dean of students at the seminary, Matt Floating at the time, said, Stephen, I want you to intern at North Holland Reformed Church. And I said, challenge accepted. But I had no idea what would come out of that. 2011. I do want to celebrate a milestone with you this morning. I've now been a pastor for as long as I was an intern. Three years of each and all in this place. I feel like some sort of equation has been balanced, but I don't really know what that means. What I do remember is on the search team, Terry Vandenbosch asking me if, if there is some quota of years that a pastor stays that if the clock had already been running for three years. I don't think so. In some ways, I feel like I'm at year zero just by working out my debt of internship. What I do know is that there have been challenges along the way. And what I also know is that there will be more challenges to accept because that is life. But also part of life on this earth, in addition to accepting challenges one after the other, whichever direction God calls us, part of our life on this earth is also to see our loved ones pass on as the Lord looks to them and says, challenge completed. In the last program year, since the last time I read one of these letters, we've seen five of our senior saints called home to glory. It started with June Van Campen in October of 2016, Grethel Nykamp, December 5th, 2016, Joyce Overbeek, January 17, 2017, Sherwin Hop, January 24. And just last week, shortly after service was over, we got the call on August 20, 2017, that Helen Dahlman had passed away. I find it a great honor to officiate funerals. Furthermore, it deepens my sense of call to this place. I want to thank you for the trust extended to me as a minister and for your appreciation expressed on opportunities such as these services. I have my style for weddings, for funerals, and you've trusted me 
and you've encouraged me both in the style as I am right now and as who I am growing to be. I'd also like to share with you just a moment, taking this opportunity to share an experience of mine. This is a common experience for me. At every wedding and every funeral that I have ever officiated, the same thing happens afterwards. Someone who is not from here, not from North Holland, will approach me and say a general trivial nice thing, like, nice job, pastor, that was a nice service. But can I say just one thing? And I always know what's coming. You look like you're 14 years old. You look like you're in middle school. Or you don't look old enough to be a pastor. It happens every single time. Now, I'm not personally offended. I am young, and I look young. But it is annoying. (laughs) Annoying because it is so predictable. But it points to a deeper problem in the church that troubles me very deeply. On one particular occasion, I ended up in the line for the funeral luncheon, standing next to an older woman who would just not let this age thing drop. She was bordering on being rude, and I'll tell you, after a funeral, I'm just tired. I am emotionally drained, and so I'm not on my most patient behavior. I didn't say anything mean. But how old are you actually, she asked, as we slowly and arduously made our way down the hallway. She asked, and before I even had time to answer, she continued, because I I just can't hardly believe that you're old enough to be a pastor. Finally, I was able to assure her that I was old enough to have already gone through four years of college and three years of seminary, and I had already been a pastor here for a few years. And her response, well, okay then, but I just still think you look too young to be a pastor. At last, we reached the food table, and I immediately parted ways with this woman once my turkey buns and chips were on my plate. I even skipped mustard that day just to cut our conversation shorter. (laughs) and because I'm paranoid about spilling mustard on my suits. (laughs) However, by default of available seating, I ended up near her. She couldn't see me, but I could see her and hear her because her back was to me. Yeah, I just don't understand it, she said. We just can't keep the young people at our church. I just don't understand it. And I sat there thinking to myself, I understand it perfectly. You don't take young people seriously. That's why they're not staying at your church. She had berated me in line for a few minutes about how young I was and how hard it was for her to take me seriously since I look so young. And I'm nearly 30. That's actually quite a common thing in the church in North America today. It's become a noticeable trend that has been named in books such as Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And that is not light, happy reading by any means. The churches that want young people often want them due to anxiety because they look around and realize that they're slowly dying. And some of them will die. And they will have no one to blame but themselves. In church leadership circles, we talk about the paradigm ultimatum of deep change or slow death. And it takes more than wishful thinking and heightened anxiety to prevent slow death. Churches across the country are closing their doors. And that is sad. It is heartbreaking and it is depressing. 
If you have to live through it or watch it happen or be involved in a classless committee while a church slowly dies, it is stressful. And it does break your heart. But you can't just blame the culture for this. You can't point the finger at everyone else, that it's everyone else's fault that the church closed. The greatest responsibility for the closing of institutional churches is on the congregation itself. Herein lies my praise for you, North Holland. You adapt, not from anxiety, but because you care about the next generation. Our senior saints are just that. They are saints. The perspective of many of our older folks, and I've often been said, we have the coolest old people at this church. The perspective of our senior saints is that of a larger kingdom perspective, not just the preference-driven church that will slowly erode away. So young people, my peers, look around you and say thank you for being you to those generations that have led the way and made this place what it is, who have shaped this culture of hospitality and investing in the generation after them. If you are young, thank someone who is old and who's been here for a while and say thank you for being you. Don't take for granted that we have a generation of saints who have been faithful in prayer, examples in service, folks who we both have a lot to look up to in them and a lot to live up to by following them. And a personal note, thank you for taking me seriously. Never once has anyone who is a member here used my age against me or dismissed me because I am young. You allow this place to be the place that lives into the truth that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, saying, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young. Because by the way, that's how pastors burn out. I have friends scattered across the country, Pastor Audrey and Jed do too, and they are burning out because they are not taken seriously. They are struggling to be heard by their churches, by their consistories. I thank God often, as I grieve for my friends, that I am somewhere that my age is not used against me. It might be shocking to other people how young I am, but I've never felt it as shocking here among you all, for you have let me live into my calling of being a pastor, and I thank you earnestly for that. As Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Thank you for letting my work here be a joy. In the last three years, a lot has happened. It's been busy. It's been full. And I actually don't know this place outside of being in our building project. Even from six years ago, as an intern sitting in on consistory meetings, this was being talked about. The last year especially, a lot has happened. Last fall, we kicked off a definitive vision for a building project we launched a capital campaign, and the resounding response from the congregation, from all of us as a collective North Holland, was challenge accepted. And now here we are, starting to see the action happen. There's still a ways to go, but I like to think of building projects like learning a language. 
If you're learning a language, every day that you learn something new, you already know more than you did the day before. My German teacher would say that a lot. Look back and realize how much you know today that you didn't know last year, last month, or even last week. It's the same with building projects. We've got a little ways to go. But we're closer now than we've ever been before. And when we move in during this next program year, the challenge-accepted phase of our life as a church does not end. It merely continues and takes on a different form. For I believe that the best is yet to come. Because the next question is, how do we get to collectively use this space to show the world a better way? To show the world a better way by sharing with them the way of Jesus. We get to have a lot of creative fun in how we do that. And that's something for all of us to take part in. I believe that everyone has a talent something to offer the world that they can teach to someone else. After all, that's discipleship, following someone else who can teach you something that you can learn from. That might for you be baking or canning. It might be sports or computers. It might be board games or magic tricks or woodworking. But all the same, it takes intergenerational fellowship to pass on what we know to someone else. It also takes getting to know people here that we might not know as well, Or maybe looking at our own hearts and realizing that we do have preferences, even here in our own fellowship, of who we like to hang out with and who we maybe avoid. Come together as a church. Accept the challenge to get to know that person that you don't actually know that well. Or to find something that you appreciate about someone who you've had a rough go with for a while. My senior year of college, I took it upon myself to try to sit next to people who I thought were really annoying. Over four years of college, I had some pretty strong opinions about who I didn't like. And so I, one by one, sat by people that I probably despised. And my goal was simple. I want to learn one thing about this person that I can appreciate and let that be the lasting impression that I depart from this place with. It worked out pretty well. Not that everybody became your best friend, But sometimes you find people less annoying when you find something you like about them. In the same way, how we love our enemies might not always translate into everybody becoming besties. After all, even in 2 Kings chapter 6, the Aramean army is spared, but they'll be back. (laughs) They're not done causing problems for Israel. But that doesn't take away the value of showing love and kindness to your enemies. It does not take away the value of setting food before someone that you hate. It does not take away the value of taking a lens of hospitality instead of hostility towards those whom you have fundamental disagreements with. That is part of our work as a church right here at North Holland. It is a challenge to accept. But the unity of our fellowship with one another will become readily apparent to all who come through our doors. Now, I am a millennial. I am the generation that right now everyone loves to hate. And don't worry, there will be another one after us. Because every generation looks down at the next and says, you don't quite measure up to us. Once again, young people, be thankful for those elders and senior saints who sit among you. Because as a young person, I can tell you one thing that we crave is mentoring. 
We crave authentic relationships, and we can spot inauthenticity a mile away. Most of us have a heightened lens to tell the difference between someone who cares about us and wants to invest in us versus someone who wants to tell us about themselves in about a heartbeat. I'm grateful to be surrounded by people like that here who are investing in their neighbor and showing love to them. And I hope that in some way our generation passes that on to the next. There's a reason that my mentor is almost retired. Because as a young person, I need the wisdom and example of our senior saints. That's why at least once a month, I disappear from my office and I go sit with Steve Vandermolen. And half the time, he's just talking me off the ledge and telling me it's okay. And even though I feel in over my head, it'll be all right. And if nothing else, I'll just say, Stephen, you're at North Holland. It'll be fine. Thanks be to God. We have lots of hostile words among our neighbors. Personal responsibility versus circumstance. We'll come back to that later. There's challenges to accept. But I hope there's something evident about our fellowship here that when people do rub shoulders with us, whether by a simple invitation or by an event that they come, that there's something that they realize they're missing by not being here. It's the best witness that we can have and to be ready and willing to show that we are ready to invest in our neighbors. We learn that by investing in one another. So, find somebody. Get to know someone new. And of course, it is my responsibility to practice what I preach, which is why this year I'm launching a new initiative. Although it's not very exciting, I still am excited about it. I'm simply calling it Pastor's Porch. Back in the day, people would always get together after evening service for cake and probably decaf coffee at someone else's house after, after worship was over. Caitlin and I want to launch that again, but we'll probably take a small break in November and early December. You'll understand. But the pastor's porch is simply an invitation initiative. There's a few categories of people at North Holland, people that I know and love very deeply, People that I know but don't know very well and wish I knew better. People that I want to catch up with or get to know a little bit more. And maybe those that we simply haven't had a meaningful conversation. Enter in the initiative of Pastor's Porch. Although it won't just be Sunday nights, it will vary. But in rotation, we just want to invite essentially all of you at some point or another to the Pastor's Porch. Although we don't have a porch, we have a sunroom, but it's kind of the same thing, and in some ways it's better. We simply just want to have dessert with each of you, and this will take time. We want to have meaningful time with every single one of you. This will take a lot of time. Challenge accepted. Sorry. <laughs> Suffice it to say that all that we've done has brought us closer together. And all that we will do will not only bring us closer together, but will be a time to show the world a better way, to show people the way of Jesus. Part of my agenda for Pastor's Porch is simply getting to know what 
unknown talent do I not know here? And how can we bring people together to teach others? That's all I really want to do. In seminary, we once had a guest speaker who I didn't really care for, um, so I won't say the name. But the emphasis was, each one of you needs to know your personal vision, your, your mission, your vision. What are you doing as, you know, you need to have clarity in all of this. Well, we have no experience yet, and everyone likes to point that out for us, too. It took me about three years to actually come up with my personal mission and vision statement. And this is not related to consistory or related to the agenda for the church. This is just me learning who I am. And my simple vision for ministry as a pastor whether I'm young or when I become old, is this. I want to live in such a way that people know that they are loved by Jesus and cared for by the church. That's it. I want people to know they're loved by Jesus and cared for by the church, whatever we're doing. Let's pray. God, it is with gratitude that we are gathered here today, gathered as your family, brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of our Lord. Lord, we endure challenges together as a family. We encourage one another as a family. We grow in our relationships. We accomplish great things when you call us together for a unified purpose. For this, Lord, we give you thanks. I thank you for each one gathered here, both those that we know well and those whom we have yet to know well. And Lord, I thank you again for our senior saints, especially those whom you have called home this year. Be with them as we grieve, as their families are parted. But may we look towards how those among us lived and loved like Jesus and follow their example for generations to come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. This time, our deacons will come forward to collect our morning's tithes and offerings. We also invite you simply to sign and pass the fellowship pads at the end of your row so we can come to know one another better.